right, series or something like that, where instead of looking at a topic throughout the Bible and preaching about it, or instead of looking at just one passage, we're going to talk about basic principles of studying our Bible and hopefully give a few tools, thoughts, and suggestions that are coming from the Word of God, but that are telling us how that on our own we can study the Bible, the Word of God, and get some more things from it for ourselves. We'll begin by introduction with reading just a couple of different verses. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Acts 17.11, Paul says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So first of all, we see from the Bible that we are supposed to be a workman with no need to be ashamed because we are studying and applying ourselves to rightly divide the word of truth, to come to the Bible and to say, Lord, would you help me not to read in my presuppositions or look to the Bible and say, well, somebody told me this is what the Bible means, but rather be able to come to the word of God with the right set of tools and principles to say, God, would you speak to me? Help me to rightly divide the Bible the word of truth and to get to the point of what it's trying to say so that I might learn your words. What Paul's writing about there in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 11 is he's writing about the Bereans and you'll see sometimes a church called Berean Baptist Church or some other name with a variety of that because what they're trying to say is they point to this verse of scripture and Paul commended the people of that town because as he preached to them they daily searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true and accurate or not. And a sign of a good Bible preacher is one who will say, don't just take my word for it, but check the word of God, study it on your own, and make sure that what you're being taught is actually coming from the word of God. Paul was not insecure or afraid of them checking their Bibles to make sure that the Bible was saying the same thing that Paul was preaching. Rather, he knew that he was preaching Christ crucified. He was preaching salvation was to come through the Messiah. And he knew that as they studied out their Old Testament copies of Scripture, they would see that he was preaching the truth. They would see that what he was saying was right. And he, through this verse, commends all of us to say the best way for us to learn is to become a student of the Word of God. And we're going to talk about this morning how part of what the Lord has ordained is that people would help us with interpreting the Scripture, that we would hear preaching and teaching, yes, and read study books and all of these things that can help us in our Bible study. But ultimately what matters most is the text, is what does the Word of God say? And our prayer this morning is that the Lord would help all of us to become Bereans like they were in the Bible, who search the Scriptures daily for themselves apart from a teaching or preaching session so that they might know what the truth of the Word of God was. Part of what I'll walk you through this morning is a little bit of what I do when I'm preparing to preach because the same basic principles that the preacher should follow to make sure that he's got the gist of what the text is saying accurate are the same tools that you can put in place when you study and when you read your Bible on your own. So that's part of this morning what my prayer is, is that maybe I, of all the things I'll say, if you'll just hear me out, that I could give you a couple things that might help you in your Bible study that the Lord would help lead all of us to be students of the Word of God, that we might know what says the Lord. Preaching is a grave responsibility. I do not take lightly the fact that every Lord's Day morning, it is my responsibility to come and to preach and to point to the text. For if I was to go to the text and to take a verse of scripture and not study enough and get it out of context, I would no longer be preaching the words of God. I would be preaching my own ideas. The call that Paul gave to Timothy was preach the word. Preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season. So then the call for the pastors of the church directly from the word of God is not just to preach about the word or even from the word, but to preach the word of God. And obviously, that involves several different aspects. Someone said preaching, when it's done right, is explanation 
illustration and application. We explain what the verses are saying. Then we come up maybe sometimes with a story, real life, or in the Bible to illustrate that truth. And then we come up with an application. How does it apply to your life and to my life? And obviously to say preach the word is not just reading the verses, but the whole point is that when we tell our stories, when we give other examples, when we talk about the Bible, when we explain the text, it could be said that we are staying so true to what the Bible says that we are preaching the word of God, not just about it or from it. A couple of terms, when we use the phrase expository preaching or expositional preaching, that's a word that simply means to expose or to explain. It means that we want our messages to come from the text of the Word of God, not we have our own ideas and then we go hunting for a couple of verses that might kind of support what I already thought and we throw out the ones that don't look right and we come up with our own narrative. A couple of fancy words that will, you will hear used sometimes are the words exegesis and hermeneutics. The word exegesis simply means the critical explanation or interpretation of a text. The word itself has to do with the root word out of. So when we say we do exegesis, it means that we are pulling out of the text what is in it so that we may explain it and apply it. The other word is eisegesis, which means to lead into. So what we say is we want to pull out of the text what it is saying, not to take our presuppositions and ideas that are already in our mind, look at the text, and then begin to lead them into that so that we're only looking for what supports the ideas that we already had. Now, I don't think it's a bad idea to say, well, I hear, I see that a lot of people struggle with anger, so I want to preach a topical message on the study of anger, so let me search out the Bible and see what it says. I think that's a very helpful and necessary way of doing Bible study, but what I'm saying is we don't already have our mind made up because of what we'd heard, hunt for a couple of verses that support us, and then ignore the rest, but rather we thoroughly study each and every one and pull out from the Word of God what it wants us to have so that we may know what is the mind of God. The other word is hermeneutics, which simply means interpretation. It's sort of the science of interpreting something. And what principles do we put together to make sure when we look at something, in this case, the Bible, that we are interpreting it correctly? Today, what we're going to focus on in the message is explanation. Remember I said preaching, they say it's explanation illustration and application. Today we're going to look at the principles that will help us explain what the Bible is saying more accurately. And I do want to say this, I believe that whether it's us in our personal private studies or preaching the Word of God, the explanation part of it really is the whole ballgame. Because we can say, yes, let's try to come up with illustrations or other Bible stories that prove this principle. Or let's try to come up with applications of how we can apply it to our life. And how can we put this into practice with nuts and bolts, which is a good thing. But if we get the explanation of the Bible wrong, if we get the interpretation of what that verse is actually saying wrong, then what are we doing with the rest of it. If we try to come up with application when we've got the interpretation wrong, then we're not coming up with God's rules or God's applications, but rather yours or mine. I have a quote up here on the screen from Mike Winger. I don't know if you can see this very well, but I'm going to read this to you. I came across this just in the last week, and I thought that this so perfectly said what I was trying to get through with the introductory thoughts. He says, sometimes we are so interested in gathering life application from the pages of Scripture that we are uninterested in simply understanding what we are reading. It's really okay to just read to understand without walking away for specific application for that day. Now, I believe in applying the Word of God. I believe that if the, we read the Bible and we find out that something we've been doing is a sin, or there's something that God says we are to do all the time that we're not doing, that we need to put that into practice. But if we become so focused on what principle can I find here? What application can I make? What list of rules can I make up from what this verse is saying? then it's possible for us to come up with applications and rules and principles that weren't actually coming out of the Bible in the first place. And so I believe that it's okay in study and in reading and in teaching and in preaching that sometimes we're just going to go to Acts chapter 2 and run through what was it saying so that we understand what the Bible 
was being written about there. And yes, in Acts chapter 2, there's people getting saved and people witnessing and preaching so we could make the application we should all look to preach and to teach the Word of God. But the Bible itself, is there's certain parts of it that might be less exciting to read or to preach than other parts. I might come up with a message that would be have a lot of application and a lot of stories and just one simple principle that I would be preaching to lead people to a decision. And I do that sometimes. But we also need to know what does Second Thessalonians chapter 3 say? What's the proper interpretation of it? Because it's all the Bible and it's all the Word of God. And what I'm saying is, yes, we can look to apply it, but if I try to come up with application for every single verse, for every single person, it's possible that I could go beyond what the text was actually saying. So that then what is the right thing to do? My belief is we preach the Word of God accurately. And then the Holy Spirit is more than capable of making an application for you and for your life and for my life. But what we have to start with is what is the Bible actually saying? What did God say? What was the intention of this verse? And if we get that wrong, then we're starting at a place where the rest of it is all going to be warped if we don't begin by saying, what does the Bible say? And this subject this morning is definitely a passion of mine. I don't think that I'm any kind of expert or anything, but I try and strive and pray that the Lord would help me to be passionate about the preaching and teaching that we do, that it's actually faithful to the text and to what the text is actually saying, and that we don't take a phrase and twist it out of context because it sounds like it would make a good sermon, and then preach about something that has nothing to do with what the verse was actually saying. This is a passion of mine, and all I want to do this morning is share a couple of brief thoughts and maybe some principles that will help all of us, because as we read from Acts chapter 17, God has called each and every one of us to be students of the Word of God. And if the only learning you ever do is when you sit under teaching and preaching, there's going to be some things lacking, if for no other reason than time is short to cover all of the Bible. But we can read through the Bible on our own and learn it and apply it and supplement the things that we are being taught. So number one, just to briefly state, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. When we hold the 66 books in our hands this morning, we believe that these are not the writings of men or the ideas of men, but rather that they are the very words of God that God spoke through the people who wrote them. And I need one drink of water and then we'll read the verses that are coming next. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. Paul says to Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if we took the time to hear everyone's testimony this morning, and how did you come to know the Lord as your Savior? No doubt God uses people to help tell other people the gospel. But it comes from the Bible. Everything that you know about salvation came from the Word of God. God didn't speak it to you directly from heaven. Rather, it was written in the Bible, and you were able to hear truths explained to you, preached to you, or maybe you found them and read them on your own, but it helped lead you to faith in Jesus Christ and to salvation. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, verse 16, you'll see the phrase at the beginning, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word therefore inspiration means God breathed. So it says that all of the scripture was breathed out by God. God gave the people the words that they were supposed to write and we find examples of that in the Bible where Jeremiah and Isaiah and other people says, the Spirit of the Lord came unto me saying, and God gave them what they were supposed to give to the people. Sometimes in the Bible you'll find examples of even the writer of the scripture not understanding what they were writing. Daniel, I believe it was, said God said write and I wrote and I understood not the saying that was written. But it didn't matter that Daniel understood it perfectly because Daniel was simply the human instrument that God used to give the word of God to. It's interesting to note, I didn't remember to include this verse, but when the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's talking there mainly about the Old Testament text, which they had 
preserved to their day because much of the New Testament was being written. But in one place, Peter calls the writings of Paul Scripture. So he says that the New Testament, what Paul wrote, and we believe the Gospels, the book of Revelation, what God gave through the apostles, is the Word of God also. Some of the Bible, you can tell the style is different depending on which author wrote it. And Paul will have a little bit of a different style than Peter or whoever else. So God may have used them in their life experience, in their personality. But God says that if it's scripture, it was breathed out by inspiration so that the very word by word level is not the words of Paul or Peter, but they are the words of God. Acts chapter 1 I believe it is, or chapter 2, it says the Holy Ghost spake through David. The Holy Ghost spoke through the mouth of David. And it quotes the Psalms, and it says David wrote it, but it wasn't David speaking, it was God speaking through David. Okay, so simple, basic. We believe that the Bible is not the words of men, it is the words of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 Peter was talking about the Mount of Transfiguration and how they saw Jesus transformed before them. And then he says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. We'll see what he's talking about is the written word of God. And Peter says what you have to read, that is the Bible, is a more sure word of prophecy than if you were to see something with your own eyes. Because you can hallucinate. You can be deceived with what you see. But when we have many copies of the Bible to compare and look at together, we know for sure that we're not being deceived by some kind of experience. And not only that, but Paul said, though I or an angel from heaven or anyone else should preach unto you another gospel than that what I have preached, let him be accursed. And it's interesting to note that within the origins of Mormonism and Islam and many false religions, they include a story where their prophet received a revelation from an angel that was contrary to what the word of God actually says. Did they have an experience? Did they have a revelation from some kind of angel or fallen angel? I think it's very possible but that they did. But if it contradicts the word of God, it's wrong and it's not right. Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It didn't come from the prophets themselves, is what he's saying. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see what he's saying? Inspiration of God, breathed out by God. They were men of God, but they spoke as the Holy Ghost moved them to learn and to speak. The Bible is inspired. That's what those verses say. When we say the Bible is inspired, we say, we're saying that we believe it was breathed out by God. It's not men's words, it's God's words. The Bible is also preserved. Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my words shall not pass away. For verily I say unto you, Matthew 5, 18, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise fail from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot or a tittle was a writing in the Hebrew language that was so minuscule that it's been likened unto the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. And Jesus said those Old Testament writings that were first given in the Hebrew language, not one aspect of it will pass away until all is fulfilled. God has placed the promise that he inspired his word and that he will preserve his word so that we can have it for ourselves today. So then when we come to the Bible, we remember these are God's words. They're not Peter's words. They're not Paul's words. And I have no right to make them my own words. I have to let it speak for itself. And remember that the Bible is the word of God. We must be sober in our approach. The Bible warns often, do not add and do not take away from the Word of God. The book of Revelation famously closes with that instruction for that book of prophecy. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it or else you will be severely judged by God. The book of Proverbs says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. 
don't take away and do not add to the word of God. And the Jews were the ones that were first given the scripture and they guarded it and they preserved it. But what began to happen is that throughout the, the, they call it the Talmud and the Mishnah, and I get confused with all the other names of it, but they added a commentary to the Old Testament. Then they added a commentary to the commentary, and then they came up with hundreds and hundreds of rules that they were commanding people they must keep that were not actually found in the Word of God. And in so doing, they actually violated the Word of God. For the Old Testament law itself said, Thou shalt not take away nor add unto the commands that the Word of God gives. So it's sinful, it's wrong to look at the Bible and say, I don't like what that's saying. I'm going to take it out. But it's equally as sinful to look at the Bible and to either purposefully or carelessly add to what it's actually saying. God says, don't do that. Number two, the Bible must always be interpreted in context. I had a quote on the screen from Mike Winger earlier, and one time he was asked, someone said, well, a lot of times when the preachers are talking about the Bible, they'll say, well, historically, this is what was happening at Corinth. And this is important in this writing because we know the history of the Jews. They meant this. And they said, do we really need to know what is the history? What was actually going on? What the culture was like? They said, isn't that adding to the word of God? Is all that we really need the words that are written? And he said, the Bible, all of it is written into a specific context. All of it is written into a specific time in history. And that would be like saying, we don't really need a dictionary, do we? We can just look at the Bible and the Bible defines itself. Yes, the Bible is what we get truth from. But to know the history, the context, the definition of the words, that is what allows us not to correct what is written, but simply to understand what was actually written. And the Bible has always been written in a spe specific, as I said, time and cultural context. And the history of those times has always been known or have been able to be known if people diligently seek it out. We always need the context. Okay, definition of the word context. The circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. What does context mean? What it's saying is basically you need to know the background, the circumstances as to what was happening and to what's going on or else you could hear a nugget of truth and then not be able to understand it. I think I should have thought of some more specific stories. I'm trying to think. Um, I, someone said one time a pastor got accused of running away with his secretary. And the person laughed and said his secretary's always been his wife and it hasn't ever been anybody else. So then you could say the pastor, ran, the pastor went off with his secretary. But if you didn't give the context that his secretary was actually his wife, you'd be missing the whole point of what was trying to be communicated. Someone said if we always know the context of the Bible, we will not be conned by the text. You won't be tricked by what you're reading if you know the context. So a couple of different principles that will help us to see what is the context of what was written. Number one, who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Is this speaking directly to me? So as we ponder a couple of those things, let's consider this statement. All of scripture applies to me, but not all scripture is written to me directly. I was reading a book that was given to me one time that started with the premise, does the Old Testament law apply to today's Christian? And I was curious to see what is the writer going to do? Is he going to be like the Hebrew roots and say, yes, we have to keep the Old Testament law, even though the Bible says it was for the Jews at that time. But ultimately, the answer that the author brought about was Yes, the Old Testament law applies to me as a Christian today, even though I'm not commanded to keep exactly what the Old Testament law says. Because all of the Bible teaches me about God's character. All of the Bible can apply to me as a Christian to learn more about God and the way He is. But a couple of examples here. Now, I could, in my Bible reading flip to the book of Job and turn to somewhere in the middle of the book of Job, read 10 verses and say, wow, that's a really great truth. I'm going to preach that for next Sunday sermon. And I could get up and preach those 10 verses taken from the middle of the book of Job as the word of God. But if you know the book of Job, 
you know the outline of the book is that it tells Job's troubles, Job's troubles for a couple of chapters. Then for about 30 or 35 chapters, Job's friends come and they all take turns speaking a little bit of Job, a lot of Job's friends. And then in the very last chapter of the book of Job, God shows up and said, yeah, everything your friend said was nonsense and it was wrong. And they've spoken that which was not right and they need to repent. So then I don't truly know what I'm reading in the middle of the book of Job unless I have the full context of the beginning, of the middle, and of the end. And that's definitely part of how we get the context of Scripture, is that we read not just one verse, but the whole pa- the whole section, the whole chapter, the whole book, and yes, even eventually the whole Bible. Someone said that preaching is like you're trying to focus on one little spot for one moment, but the best way to ease into it is you start as if you were up in an airplane looking at everything all at once. You lay a little bit of the setting, a little bit of the context, and then you zoom in a little bit more, and then you get all the way up on that one truth to make sure you give people the setting. So, as I said, the book of Job is a good example. I could turn to the book of Genesis and read a promise where God says that your descendants, you'll have so many descendants, they'll be as many as the stars of heaven or as the sand of the sea. And I could say, God, I claim this promise. I'm going to have so many descendants that come from me that they'll be more than can be numbered. But you have to read it in context. It wasn't given to anyone who would claim it. It was given to Abraham, who would begin the Jewish nation, and eventually the Messiah would be born through. It was an Abrahamic covenant. So I can't read that verse and claim it for me. But I can read that verse and apply to my life that there's a God in heaven that answers prayer, that He's mighty, that He can do miracles, that He can do impossible things. You see what I'm saying? It all applies to me, but not all of it is written directly to me. At one point in Scripture, there's a rich man who died and went to hell, and he speaks. But it's just simply recording accurately what he was saying, not necessarily that the whole message was from God, if that makes sense. But when we come to the writings of the Apostle Paul, that's where we get our New Testament church polity and policy from. He was writing directly to New Testament churches that were just getting established and telling them how things ought to be run, how they ought to be organized, and what that's supposed to look like. So then we look at that and say, yes, we want to pattern our church after what the Apostle Paul wrote. Another question, does other scripture say that this command has passed? You could read the Old Testament law, and if you want to be thankful that we're under grace and not under the law, go to the book of Leviticus and start reading until your eyes cross over and see how many different rules and regulations they had where they couldn't wear a shirt that was made of mixed fibers that were sewn together. They couldn't eat shellfish. They couldn't eat pork. All of these different rules. But if you read the New Testament, you'll see Paul clearly fleshing out and explaining that all of that was to teach us that we were sinners. It was for the Jews for a specific amount of time, but now it has passed away. And through that Old Testament law, God taught the Jews and all of history after the Jews, you can't earn your way to heaven. That was the whole point. Paul said, the law was a schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. The Old Testament law was a teacher to show you and to show I. We're sinners. We can't keep the law of God perfectly. But then Paul said, but now that I'm saved, I'm no longer under a schoolmaster. So he clearly says the Old Testament law does not apply to me today. I'm not commanded to keep all of that ceremonial law, such as the sacrificing of animals and on and on, that the Jews were commanded to keep. But I still learn about God from it. It's still the Bible. A question we can ask ourselves, is this passage or verse descriptive or prescriptive. In other words, is it prescribing this is the way it always ought to be? Or is it just describing what was going on at a particular time in history? When I was a teenager, I came across some messages where a pastor was preaching and he had a whole series on betrothal. And he was teaching the Bible says the only right way to meet your spouse is for betrothal through arranged marriages, not through dating, not through any other form. And people shouldn't be allowed to talk to each other and get to know each other until they've already been committed and pledged by their parents and everybody agrees as an arranged marriage. And part of that is the the man has to pay a bride price, which means he should go go buy equipment for his father-in-law's business. Or if he's poor, go buy 20 gold coins and give it to him. And he said, then the lady will feel valued that she was being bought from her dad. And that's what the Bible teaches. 
but part of what he did in those verses was he read from the book of Genesis and Jacob was betrothed to Rachel or however it worked. And then he had another verse and so-and-so was betrothed to so-and-so. And then he simply stopped and moved on. And I was only a teenager, but I knew enough of the Bible to know that if you looked at a chapter a little bit back or a little bit forward, it was explaining people who were married to five or six wives at one time. And at one place in the book of uh, Samuel Kings or something like that, the Israelites were coming up against a city and they told them, this city has a tradition where every night at evening time, all the single ladies of the city come out and they do this ceremonial type of presentation and dance. And they said, you need wives. So when they come out, everybody go grab one and carry her off and take her home and she'll be your wife. But the Bible was not prescribing. That's how you're supposed to find a wife. The Bible was describing what was going on. And many times in Old Testament times, it was a barbaric culture. It was different. It was not what God had originally intended. There were certain things that God overlooked for a period in time. But we don't, what I'm saying is we don't look at it and say whatever this says is what everybody's supposed to do. Sometimes it's simply describing what was going on, not prescribing what we are supposed to do. Now when we read God now commands all men everywhere to repent, that covers everybody, everywhere. God's saying you have to repent of your sin. So you see, and some people say, oh, well, the Bible, you can make it say whatever you want to. You can if you're dishonest, but if you honestly study it, you cannot come to any other conclusion but that the Bible says Jesus is God. He's the only way to heaven. You have to repent. You have to turn by faith or else you will be condemned for all eternity. And people who do not want to receive the message of the Bible can come up with any excuse they want. But it is possible to know what is the Bible saying. It's not a private interpretation for the prophet who wrote it or for us who read it. We can come up with what the meaning means. Another principle, don't define the clear by the unclear. In other words, if there's one verse that maybe kind of sort of you could say, does that make it sound like I could lose my salvation? I'm not really sure. And then you throw out 25 other verses that clearly say your salvation is forever and you can't lose it. Don't take what's unclear and try to redefine what is absolutely clear. Apparent differences in the Bible can be reconciled. We can't ignore other clear scriptures. It would be like taking an instruction manual and reading it out of order, as Brother Jeff shared at our Wednesday night Bible study that we've been doing. He said to take a verse out of context or one verse, it would be like going to a new job and saying, here's 20 points in your instruction manual of what you have to do and jumping to number 17 and ignoring everything else that came before it. We have to look at all of the Bible. We have to strive to do it in context. Okay, and then the last point is define the words. It's a simple concept, but the Bible is written with words. And we live in a, a culture that's constantly trying to redefine what words say. And Merriam-Webster or whatever online dictionaries, if the culture says, well, no, we don't want to define a man or a woman as someone who was born that way. We want to define it as someone who identifies it that way. And the pressure is put on and the people who are running the online dictionary go in and change what's been written for centuries because they're afraid of the blowback. And so they go along with the nonsense rather than the truth. But words mean things and we have to strive to define them, whether it's the English words or the Greek or the Hebrew. Now, we read the verse that says not one jot or tittle will pass away. That's talking about the Hebrew. So then, the Bible has been preserved, not because it was ever lost, and God had to write some new Bible so that we would have it. The Bible's been preserved because God has preserved the Greek and the Hebrew in which it was originally written. And one thing, I could give other examples, I've got to keep moving for time's sake, but I've heard preachers say things and argue, and part of what I would like to say is you don't get your own definitions of the word. You're not allowed to look at the word and look at the Greek and look at the Hebrew, look at the dictionary, look at the context and the way it's used and say, yeah, I know that the dictionary and all the definitions say that, but I'd like to explain it like this. We don't get to do that. I literally was sitting there and heard one preacher say one time, he said, now I want to define this word. And he said, I looked it up in all the dictionaries I could find, and I didn't like what it said, so I made up my own definition. And I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Okay, let me give you an example. A pastor in Arizona who got a big following 
because uh, he put his sermons on YouTube and would often preach the most controversial things and say that he was praying for for the president to die and go to hell and saying that he didn't want to see certain people get saved and just all kinds of terrible things. But he became famous because sometimes when you yell the loudest and you're good at technology, especially in this day and age, it's easy to gather together some type of following. But he has a doctrine where he said he teaches homosexual people cannot be saved. It's impossible for them to come to Christ and receive salvation. And he takes that teaching by going to the book of Romans and it describes a whole lot of sins and one of them is homosexuality and it says they are unto every good work reprobate. Well, the problem is that the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The word reprobate that is used in that passage does not mean can't get saved. It means morally reprehensible, worthless, or despicable. Speaking of the moral behavior that is being described. And not only that, but all kinds of sins were described in that passage, not just that one. The Bible was not saying if you've ever done one of these sins, you can't be saved. That actually is heresy. That contradicts what the Bible says. The Bible says there's only one sin that cannot be forgiven. And that is refusing to repent and receive the Holy Ghost and believe in Jesus as your Savior. The sin of unbelief and unrepentance will not be forgiven, but other sins can. Not only that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to this church where they came from a Greco-Roman culture of all kinds of sins. And he, he describes the sins that many people were, were committing and that had taken place in that church and in that culture. And part of them were effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind, which clearly the Greek word was saying is male homosexuals. Then he says in the next verse, and such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how dangerous it gets when we want to come up with our own doctrines and we want to come up with something that no one's ever taught before and we don't define the words right? It leads to the heresy of saying that some sin is so bad that the blood of Jesus cannot pay for it. And again, the context is always the key. I've got to keep moving. I could tell so many stories, but I heard one preacher say he was in college and someone preached a chapel message and he read from the book of Ezra where it says that Ezra read the law off of a pulpit of wood. And he said, the Bible says the pulpit's supposed to be made out of wood and having a pulpit that's made out of glass is against the Bible. And even if more people would get saved if we used a glass pulpit than a wood pulpit, it'd be wrong because the Bible says we're supposed to use a wood pulpit. But the Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible described what happened and what was going on. And I do not believe that God is pleased if we presume to speak on His behalf. And then, so we're talking about basics of Bible study. We said, number one, the Bible is the Word of God. Number two, the Bible must always be interpreted in context. And now we'll consider number three, get help. Get help in understanding what the Bible is saying. Acts 8.30, And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? The Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his chariot by the water, reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And Philip came upon him and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what the Bible says? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so he opened not his mouth. This is part of what the Word of God says. The plan of God is, is that other people would help you know what the Bible is saying. Nehemiah 8.8 8, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. This then is the pattern that God has placed all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. When they stood up and read the book of the law, it says they gave the sense and helped the people to understand what it was saying. And as the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I understand except some man should guide me? This is God's plan. He was not saved, but it goes on to say he was reading from Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus and how Jesus is the Messiah. And Philip helped expound to him Jesus Christ. And he got saved and baptized. Now remember, only the text 
is inspired. When you get the Bible, only the words in the text are actually inspired from God. Not the study notes, not the maps in the back. All of that is given to help us understand, but only the text is inspired. However, it would be arrogant to ignore centuries worth of helpful commentaries that were produced through honest labor and study. It would be arrogant to think, I don't need any study tools. I don't need any help. I don't need to read what other people have actually written about the Bible. I'm just going to read the Bible for myself. And yes, you need to read it for yourself. You need to check the studies against the Bible because sometimes the commentaries are wrong. But it would be arrogant to think that we can't be helped by other servants of God who labored and endeavored to accurately get to the sense of what the text was saying. One teacher had a series from Romans 6 and 7, and he was basically teaching, if you just get a second blessing from God and claim the victory, he'll take away all desires for you to ever sin again, and you will not have to live with that. Which I don't agree with, but the point I'm trying to make is he said, after I wrote my sermon, I decided and thought, I wonder what the commentaries have to say about this. He said, so after I already taught my teaching, I went to those commentaries to see which ones agreed with me. And he said, not one of them agreed with me. And then he said, as a matter of fact, I'm the only preacher I know that's right about Romans chapter 7. Is it possible? I guess. Is it probable? Not very. We don't state our conclusion and then try to see, is it accurate? We should start with a humble approach that includes what have other people produced through their study that might help me understand what the text is actually saying. Preaching, teaching, and discipleship. Now, with about the 10 minutes we have left, I'm going to give a couple of specific resources you can take home that you can look at. Now, I'll say a statement that usually, before you say it, you might want to duck because people might want to throw something at you and get mad from every different angle of it. But very briefly, we'll say what about Bible translations. What I would like to do is extremely briefly give a little bit of background of where we're at as a church, of why we do what we do, but also to keep in mind that people have all kinds of different beliefs. We're all part of the body of Christ and no one is required to agree with me or agree exactly with what we do. The problem is that sometimes we fail to talk about these things and we get afraid to talk about them because if you say anything at all about a Bible translation, half the people automatically dismiss you as a crazy fundamentalist and then the other half might get mad at you because you add a little nuance and they think you're attacking the Bible. But let me very so briefly say the following facts are generally agreed upon by both sides. Not the conclusions, but many people, most people will agree that these are the basic facts about Bible translations. Okay? Stick with me for just a moment if you can. The Textus Receptus, also known as the Received Text or the Byzantine Text Type, came from over 5,000 manuscripts. This text, this Greek text, underlies the King James Version and a handful of other English translations. The critical text underlies nearly all other English translations and is based mainly upon two ancient manuscripts which were out of circulation for centuries, one of them being held by the Catholic Church. The critical text omits several readings from the Textus Receptus. So the basic gist of that is there is a certain line of Greek manuscripts and that is called the Textus Receptus, meaning the received text. And then there's another text that is called the critical text. The critical text underlies most New English translations, but the received text underlines the King James and a handful of other Bibles. That is, as I said, is generally agreed upon by everyone. If you've heard of James White, he's a Calvinist teacher that is pretty hostile towards the idea of only using the King James or only using the Textus Receptus. But he said he was having a discussion with someone and someone said, well, the the King James Bible and the, the received text was the Bible of the Reformation. That was the Bible that the Reformers had. And James White said, well, that's not fair to say that because they didn't even know that the other texts existed. They weren't yet introduced into the circulation and into textual criticism. So basically, 
I am very strongly a believer in the received text and what underlies the King James and a few of the other English translations, not because I think that the Bible was lost for centuries and then God rewrote it in English, not because I think we can't have other translations, but it's more of a textual issue and where they came from. And the textual critics will say, well, the older is better. So even though these were out of circulation for 400 years and no one had them, these are the true Greek texts. I don't believe that. I believe that the Bible has always been had by the church and by God's people. And in that in that large body of manuscript evidence is where we should look to find out the text that underlies the Bible. Our website has the following statement. What is your position on Bible translations? We exclusively teach and preach from the King James Version. We believe that it is a completely accurate translation of the correct Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. We also realize that this is a complex, nuanced issue and choose to be kind and loving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ who do not share our exact position. We are committed to properly defining the King James English by using the dictionary and consulting the original Greek and Hebrew words. And I just want to say that goes for everyone, the people who join, the people who attend. If you disagree or have a different practice or belief or Bible you even carry to church, I'm not worried about that. I want to every so often give an explanation of where we're at and why we came to those conclusions. But as I've said over and over, I am committed to preaching the pages of the Bible, not the cover of the Bible. And I've heard a lot of people that will get up and preach and they say more about the translation of the Bible they're using than the actual words that are printed. And depending on who you ask, even the underlying Greek texts that that vary from themselves wildly, somewhere between 97% or over 99% of the time, they agree. So there are other very good translations that are written in a more modern language that will help you understand the Bible. And even if they are slightly different, I don't think we ought to take other versions of the Bible and light them on fire or throw them in a trash can or stomp on them during preaching, all of which I've seen before, which I think is shameful behavior. Now, the second aspect is that the reality is that the King James Version is written in Old English and will require diligent study if we are to properly understand it. And KJV users must properly study and define the words of God. It's a very real problem that it's written in Old English and there's a lot of words in there that simply don't mean what we would use to say them today. So in preaching, I think that it makes it so important that the preacher has studied and knows what was actually written so that it can be explained in a way that everyone understands it. And in your own study, there's a whole lot of different things you can do, including reading updated translations if it's helping you to understand the Bible better. And I'll list a couple of specific resources. I'm trying to not go too long today. But before we talk about the specific resources, remember a couple of principles. These are God's words, not man's words. Sometimes what is written by men about God's words are going to be wrong. So we have to remember the Bible is what really matters. Be humble in your approach to the Bible. Be willing to consult sources you don't completely agree with. Now, if I was unwilling to consult a source that I didn't 100% agree with, I wouldn't be looking at any of them. I'd only be looking at what I wrote. But there are people who believe somewhat differently than I might believe in different aspects, but that still are my brothers and sisters in Christ and have produced extremely helpful resources and tools that will help me to understand the Bible. It's kind of sad, but someone said that if you want a really good commentary, you might have to buy one that was written by a Calvinist because a lot of the non-Calvinists don't write spend the time that it takes to write a good commentary. That's not completely true. Now, I'm not a Calvinist, but my approach is if someone has written something that is orthodox in its approach that is helpful to explain the Word of God, I'm going to look at what they have to say while all the time understanding that not everything they say is gospel and not everything they say I will agree with. Some of my favorite resources are the Blue Letter Bible. You can go to the website or to the app, and it will allow you to look at one verse and pull up 30 different English translations of it at once, let you look at the Greek words, let you look at the Hebrew words, click one click over, and it will put maybe 10 different commentaries that were written that you can look and try to have it help explain the Bible to you. 
Strong's Concordance is a free app that will go on your phone. I also put in brackets other interlinear Bibles or apps. Some people say Strong's is really not that great. It's kind of a beginner's very beginner's tool to look at the Greek or Hebrew, and that's fine. I'm not saying it's gospel. You can compare them with others, but what it will do is it will show you the Greek or Hebrew word, and specifically, if you are reading from the King James, it shows you how many times that word was translated and what it was said, because often the King James will take one word in the Greek and translate it five different ways into English, and the translator specifically said, we did not want to be the arbiters for all time of which words were good and which words were bad. Therefore, they came up with an accurate word and they used different ones that would apply. John chapter 3, 15 says eternal life. John 3, 16 says everlasting life. It's the same word that underlies eternal and the same word that underlies everlasting. So when we look at what the basic definition of the Greek or Hebrew word was and how many times it was translated once, it's not correcting the Bible. It's just helping us to understand what's there and what's actually written. BibleRef.com, they have a commentary that's nearly completed for every verse in the Bible. If you will Google Acts 8.30, meaning it will pop right up. You click on the page, it gives you six English translations, and then a whole section that was written with the commentary about what that verse, what the context is, and what it was saying. I like Barnes Notes. It was written in the 1830s by Albert Barnes, who graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary, because those those colleges were founded as seminaries as uh, seminaries back in those days. Again, not everything's going to be right in every source you look at, but I find it to be very thorough and very helpful and doctrinally sound. Bible Hub will allow you to look at one verse in 30 or 40 different translations at once, because if you're having a hard time understanding what you're reading, it can be very helpful to look at all of the English translations at once, and chances are you'll see one or two that stick out, but the chances are too that you'll see it phrased many different ways, then you can look back at whatever Bible you're studying from primarily, and it's just going to help you get an understanding of what the Bible is actually saying, which is important, which is the whole point. I hear that Logos is an excellent software. That one requires payment, but if you want to look at manuscript evidence and which verse showed up in which ones, you can click and look, and we can word by word get down to see why the Bible is preserved and why it says what it says. I'm running out of time. I'm out of time. If you give me just another minute, some preachers that I listened to, the first about seven of them there that are listed are independent Baptist preachers. Um, Then I have Adrian Rogers. He was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He actually does preach exclusively out of the King James, but does a really good job of preaching. And then I have Mike Winger and John MacArthur. And again, it's one of those things where sometimes you may say a name and people will say, well, I heard John MacArthur said three things that weren't right. And I don't agree with it. And I don't agree with all of his theology either. But when I I struggle with a passage, if I go listen to him, he's one of those that takes the approach of genuinely and thoroughly walking through and doing the best he can to tell you What is the story actually saying? And I am helped by those resources. I think if you were to sample all of those preachers, you'd find they're from varying different backgrounds and sometimes even denominations. And in their approach, some might sound a little bit more... I don't know what word you want to say, fiery or, or uh, fundamental or strict than I am, some of them a little less. But I think that if you listen to them, you would get the idea of what I strive for in preaching, which is that we're not playing games, that we're not just talking about our pet issues, but we're looking at the text and striving to bring out what it says. And if you, in case, that's why I made you study notes. If anyone wants to listen, who's listening to this later would like a copy, I'll send them to you by email. And if you'll look, and if you're hungry for more study or listening to preaching, these are just some resources that I recommend. I won't read the whole next section, but there's about five or six Bibles translations that claim to be updated translations that were written from the exact same Greek text type and Hebrew text that the King James was. Most of them are very soft updates that might change the these or the thous. The modern English version of the Bible is available for purchase, but it's also available for free on BibleGateway.com. They even sell versions of it where on the left side of the page you've got the original King James, and on the right side you've got the modern English version. And if you know the King James well and read the modern English, it reads very much like 
faithful to what the King James was saying, but just in an updated tongue. That can be a great resource for someone who didn't grow up with the King James and who is struggling in your own private study to go through it. And it was translated from the exact same Greek and Hebrew text that the Old and New Testament were. Again, do your own research, compare it to the Word of God. But all of these things are very helpful for us to study the Bible on our own, which was the whole point that even the King James itself was translated, was that so the people in their tongue could have what the Word of God said and be able to understand it without having to ask the Catholic priest who might have had an agenda. And even if you miss something, you'll often still get the gist of what the Bible is saying. I'm just going to go ahead. Five minutes, and I I apologize for being long today. We don't have Sunday school or Sunday night anymore, so an extra ten minutes on Sunday morning shouldn't be that big of a deal, okay? That's my position, anyway. (laughs) In uh, Timothy, I think it is, it's giving instructions for if you have a parent who is elderly, who's no longer able to work, and they can't care for themselves, Paul says the people need to know it's your responsibility to help care for your parents. Then he says, but if there be a widow that does not have children or nephews to care for her, then the church can help to care for her. And so what he's teaching them is don't say, oh, well, I give to the church. I don't have to provide for my mother, even though she's a widow and doesn't have health and can't work. The church can do it. Paul said, no, it should be your responsibility to strive to give some to your church and to take care of your family. But the church is there as a backstop for the people who don't have family to care for them. Okay, does that make sense? But he said children or nephews. The word nephews came from a Greek word that simply means descendants that pretty much is always used in the context of grandchildren. If you look at a dictionary from the 1600s, it says the word nephew can mean either the son it can mean the son or daughter of your brother or sister the way that we use nephew, then it says or the English word nephew can mean grandchildren although it is not much used in such a sense anymore. So by the 1600s, the word nephews was already somewhat archaic for describing grandchild. But if you're reading that passage and look, what Paul is actually saying is that if you have children or grandchildren, they should care for you before that responsibility comes to the church. That's not correcting what the Bible is saying. It's not correcting a translation of the Bible. It's simply saying that 400 years ago, when they wrote nephew, nephew could mean grandchild. Okay, does that make sense? Now, if you were reading the Bible and you didn't know that, you'd still get the gist of what the passage is saying. You'd still get the principles. But I'm saying that because that's a very specific illustration to help all of us understand. We have an opinion on Bible translations because of the text that underlies it, but it's also extremely important that we don't just give a new Christian something they can't read or understand without resources to help them because there are a lot of archaic words in there that without the proper help, you're actually going to miss the gist of what it was being said. I don't like talking about Bible translations. I don't think I've done it in a year and a half on a Sunday morning. I don't plan too much, but I'm just trying to give some help and to give enough nuance to say, I'm not attacking a translation of the Bible. I'm not attacking you if you use something different. We want to understand what the Bible says and we want to love and be kind to people and welcome whoever has a different opinion because uh, uh, unfortunately there's been a lot of bad behavior on every side of that issue where people call people names and they don't perhaps study as much as they should. Number four, the last two ones are compare scripture with scripture. You can do that through a topical study, through cross-references, and through studying the entire passage itself. Billy Sunday once said, if you give an intelligent person the New Testament, they will eventually say, where is the other group of writings to which this group of writings refers because the New Testament refers to the old over and over again. So having a simple study Bible that puts cross-references in it will allow you to read Hebrews and one chapter of Hebrews references the Psalms seven or eight times and you can stop and look back at the Psalms and see what it is saying. Number five, pray for understanding. John sixteen thirteen says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And God will delight to teach you His Word. If you want understanding and help understanding a group of writings, why don't you go to the source, go to the author, and ask them what they meant? So then go to God in prayer and ask Him to help you understand what you are reading. And I believe God will delight 
to teach you his word. Joshua 1.8 said that when they studied and did what was written in the book of the law, the word of God, they would make their way prosperous and have good success. And study and application of the Bible will always be pro- profitable. Be patient, be humble, pray for understanding. As your pastor, I would recommend this. I would rather read 10 verses that I can understand than 300 verses that I don't know what it's talking about, but I can simply mark it off on a chart. Start simple. Start with the Psalms. Start with the Gospel of John. Apply the study tools. And if you only have 30 minutes, then say, God, help me in these 30 minutes to learn what these 10 verses were actually trying to convey. Let's stand and let's be dismissed with a word of prayer this morning. Um, If one of the ladies would come and play a recessional, as always on our different topics that we discuss, I'm always open to questions. It's easy to talk about things and be misunderstood, but I love you all. I pray that God would give us unity in the body of Christ. No one has to agree with me on everything in order to be welcome here, but I pray that in some small way you can take the tools that were given this morning and maybe apply them and ask that God would help you to be a student of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that it's been good to be in your house this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to be students of the Word, to be hungry for what the Bible says, and that we would love one another even if we have a difference of opinion sometime, and that we would be willing to look at the diverse options that are available to help us understand your Word. I pray that as we go forward throughout the rest of the year with a couple more topical sermons and then some verse-by-verse preaching for the end of the year, that you would help us to learn what the Bible says and apply it to our lives, that we would humbly be students of the Word of God, that it would shape us, that it would mold us, and that it would help us in our life. For any prayer requests that a person has here today, I pray, Lord, that you would answer it. And most of all, I pray that if there's anyone who needs to receive Christ as Savior, that they would do so today, that they would speak to me or someone else. I pray for unity. I pray for love in the body of Christ. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, in all things, always, to look to the Bible and to let it be our guide, to stand on the words of God and not on our own. We love you and we pray that ultimately through our church and through our life, and even our service this morning, that you would receive the glory that is not for us, but only for you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.